Good morning. I would like you to imagine a young person coming out of his classrooms where he's learned philosophy and literature and mathematics. He's finished with those sessions, and as he steps out of one building, he goes to another building in his right, and that's called the gymnasium. And there he's learning about boxing and wrestling. There's calisthenics and there's weightlifting. After his sessions there, he moves across a few yards to an open field. They call that field a stadium. And in that stadium, they do track and field events, throwing the javelin, discus, and running various races. I'm not describing to you some current circumstance, perhaps, that takes place in the high school here in Marquetta that you grew up with it. I'm telling you about the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul grew up in a very sports-centric world. It's hard for us to imagine that, that such a thing was. We think we invented sports. Not the case. And in that sports world, in those schools of classroom, Paul learned about the philosophy of, of sport, where these philosopher, philosophical teachers of the day raise the principles of endurance and perseverance and use them as life principles to teach how you're supposed to live your life in perseverance, endurance, and discipline, and trying to do your best, to run for the prize. Paul then took those words and elevated them even higher to the spiritual life. I read a book once about writing, and the author said, if you're going to write a book on how to cook a duck, you should entitle it how to cook a duck. Hence my title, How to Run the Race God Has Marked Out for You. This is an example of the world that Paul grew up in. This particular stadium was a little west of where he would have been raised. The area where he was raised in was a university center. We know they had all these facilities there. But that is still occupied. There's a town still there. And those things and buildings that Paul was actually in are buried under other buildings now that are currently in use. But all around the eastern Mediterranean, you can see all of these stadiums as archaeologists have uncovered them. This is one not far away, built around 150, 200 years before Christ. This stadium is estimated to be able to hold about 35,000 spectators. And in those days when they ran these kind of events, these track and field kind of events, you can see this oblong track, only men were allowed when men participated in these sports, in the Olympic sports. Women also did sports and also did run in these Olympic stadiums. We know that for a fact through archaeological research and the release that we see on walls and, and on the terracotta, the uh, running around these pots that we found. Uh, but that was an off years. They had their own separate events and men the other. There weren't any co-ed kind of events or even co-ed audience or visitor or spectator events. Very popular. And Paul grew up in that world and he ref, ref, uh, talks about so many referencing to all these different sports. I'm only going to talk about a couple, a number of the verses, not all of them, that he used referencing the athletic metaphors. Uh, I have to believe that he certainly grew up in it and being a Jew, normally Jews didn't participate in these kinds of things, but Paul was a Roman citizen. More than that, he was born a Roman citizen. So he would have been afforded all these rights and privileges to attend these universities. One of which was in his own town of Tarsus. 
And the way he referenced running so much and the way he talked about it leads many to believe that he perhaps participated in it, in it himself. He writes these lines in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. In those days, they put a pine wreath as your crown. Paul's talking about another crown that all of us who long for his appearing will receive one day, and we will all get to see that. In the Greek world, that this idea of the perfect man, of the ideal perfect person. And so when they had their educational systems, they used all the aspects of body, soul, and spirit. They trained the mind, they trained, had religious training, and they trained the body. There was, in a sense, no jocks. Well, there were jocks, but everybody participated in these races, no matter how good you were or you were not. Obviously, the better ones would elevate themselves to higher levels of running, perhaps even in the Olympic Games, which they would do every four years for 700 years. This idea of the perfect man. You can see this reflected in the scriptures that Luke writes. We'll address that in a moment. Paul writes, and I believe he wrote Hebrews, he says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. First of all, he tells us we need to train for the race. He can't expect to run a long distance without training. And he takes this concept of training, this athletic metaphor, and he says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness is a value both for this age and in the age to come. It's a value for all things. I remember years ago when I worked with associate staff of Campus Crusade, now called Crew, at Southern Methodist University. And the guy I was partnered with was a guy named John Lodwick. And I remember standing there waiting for him to show up, and we were going to go speak at a fraternity. And John comes running up, a tall guy, very mild-mannered. And just as a conversation starter, I just asked him, well, were you guys out running today? You see, John was a world-class marathoner. An All-American in college, he would go on to place fourth in the Boston Marathon and win many marathons in Europe and in Hawaii. And his roommate was actually a little better than him. So I'm just to start the conversation, I said, John, did you go running? He said, yeah, yeah. I, uh, Jeff and I, my roommate, we went and ran a you know, six-mile race uh, for, for time. Well, that's pretty good, six miles, that's pretty hard. And then he just to qualify to be perfectly truthful, yeah, but we got together and did a nine-mile run this morning at six. That's 15 miles. If you want to train to be a world-class uh, marathoner, an Olympic athlete, which is what he was, you've got to train, and you've got to train very hard. John would use this very passage in the talk he gave us one time to describe these, these kinds of things. So physical training is good, it's a value, but we need to train spiritually. So how do you train for godliness? That's a, that begs the question. And I think you could put every imperative in the Bible right here because that's how you train for godliness. But let's talk about the most important things. If I were to ask you, what is the most important commandment? What do you immediately think of? The love of God. Exactly. We are to love, the God, love our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and all our mind. It's very interesting. When Matthew, who writes this passage, quoting Jesus, which is an Old Testament quote, 
he leaves out the word strength. He's, he says heart, soul, and mind. But when Luke writes it, who was a Gentile, Matthew was writing the Jews, Luke was writing the Gentiles, in the Gentile world. He knew that uh, Hebrews would understand the idea, well, yes, I love him with my body, soul, and my, with my body, that's my whole self. The Greeks need to have that spelled out to accurately translate that verse. So he adds the word strength, because in their world that was part of it, part of being the perfect person. We love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and with all our mind. We engage our whole self in the love of God. And he goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love, love our neighbor, love obviously the fellowship of believers. Also, Scripture tells us we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us, Colossians 3.16. I like that line that Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in us as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, giving gratitude to God in our hearts. We don't just simply listen to the word and read the word. We let it find a home in us. It lives in us. I want the word of Christ to dwell in me. Also prayer, a few verses later in Colossians 4.2, Paul writes, be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. I pray, not just simply pray, but I'm devoted to prayer. Beyond that, he talked uh, in other other scriptures about fellowship together as believers. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we know that passage about building one another up in love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but but let us encourage one another on towards love and good deeds. The fellowship of believers is God's idea, not man's. And it was God in using this church that really brought that home to me when I was a young student at Northern Michigan University and began to attend this church on your old site at Bethel Baptist Church. By the way, one of the first things I did when I came here is to make certain that those trusses were still up. I was a little worried about that when your pastor at that time asked us to put them up. But it was successful. We had ropes on either side and we worked together and the guys had footings there and they screwed them into those footings there below us. We're building a church. Also, the idea of testifying about his grace. Only a few of us have the gift of salvation, the gift of, uh, of evangelism, maybe 10% of a congregation. But we're all called to bear witness, to tell others what God has done in our lives. We're all called to tell our story. Mark 5, 19, where Jesus heals a Gadarene demoniac, and he wants to follow Jesus. And the word follow in Greek is mathetes, which is disciple. Disciple means follower. And it's in the active and present tense, continual following. There's no I used to be, there is only I am a disciple of Christ. And he tells the gathering demonic, he says, no, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for us. That's how we train ourselves for godliness. We love, we love God, we love each other, we fellowship with other believers, we let the word of Christ dwell in us, we pray, and we tell our story. And many other things you could add to that, but those are, I think, are the biggest. Well, that's what we're supposed to do, but there's also something we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to bring up the past. If I'm a runner and I'm running forward, I cannot be looking back. I can't even be looking side to side. If I'm a runner and I'm focused, i got to be looking ahead. Paul uses that obvious metaphor, that obvious analogy, you can't run like that without looking ahead, to talk about the spiritual life. And there's two things that he says we need to forget about. One of them is our accomplishments. That's something maybe we don't necessarily grasp on. But he gives a long list in more than one place in the scriptures about what he did. Sort of like listing all his 
resume high points. You know, a Jew, Jews of, Hebrew, of Hebrews, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee in terms of the law, he understood the word of God in, in, in extraordinary fashion. They'd memorized large portions of scripture, word for word. And as far as zeal, persecuting the church. That would have been a tough thing for Paul to remember. So we forget about our failures, excuse me, our successes. We don't let that dominate our life. It doesn't become who we are. We, go, we are going forward. I believe it was Lee Trevino, the golfer, that said, the older I get, the better I was. You leave that behind you. You don't live in the past. But the other thing you've, you've got to forget about is your guilt and your shame. Think about what Paul said. I persecuted the church. In Acts 7, we read about him stoning or being involved in the stoning death of Stephen, a great man of God. Stephen, the first deacon, is being stoned, and Paul is there in Acts 7.58, watching over the cloaks of those who are stoning him. He's approving of what's going on. And they're seeing him murder Stephen. And Stephen stands up and says, God forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, mimicking Christ, his Savior. Paul would have heard that. And then he sees Stephen stand up. I see Jesus, who normally is seated at the right hand of the Father, standing there to receive him up into heaven. Paul would have heard those words. They would have stuck in his mind. And he stood by approving. But again, you have to imagine that imagery and that voice would stick in him. Later on when he persecuted the church, imagine where he's having, say, a mother being dragged away from her, her children and they're, they're calling out to each other and she's being dragged away to jail. How that would play in your mind. No wonder he says in several places, I'm a sinner. He calls himself the least of the apostles. In regards to sin, I'm the worst of sinners. He writes, here's a trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy. Uh, Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. But for that very reason, I was showing mercy so that me, the worst of sinners, you know, might be saved. I like what he does there. There, and we need to take note of that. He shines a spotlight on his sinfulness and his wretched behavior, and it was, we would all agree. But he doesn't self-flagellate. He doesn't drown in a cesspool of self-loathing, which could be very easy for someone like that to do. Instead, he looks at himself a terrible sinner, and he says, look what a great Savior I've got. For I was so in mercy for that very reason, so that Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience in me and all of us who believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he kind of just goes into this ecstatic praise of God and quotes one of the greatest praise verses in the whole Bible. He stands up and he says these words, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. You got to forget what is behind. If you've got some accomplishments, don't love them so much that it defines and ruins your future. Don't be so disturbed by your guilt that it, triples, it trips you up and entangles you. Paul writes in a later, later place, I write, and I think he wrote Hebrews, throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Forget what, God, forget what you've done and remember what God has done for you. He's washed away your sin. You can't live in the past. You have to keep going forward. You can't be looking backward. Paul wasn't good enough to save himself, was he? Nor was he bad enough to keep himself from being saved. You and I can't be good enough to save ourselves. 
Paul was about as good from a religious, righteous point of view as a human being could be, at least according to uh, Jewish pharisaical law. But he wasn't bad enough to keep himself from being saved. Quite the opposite. He used his wretched behavior as an example of Christ's forgiveness. He praised God for what God had done for him. Well, that's what we're not supposed to do is to look back, but we are to look forward. He says, fix your eyes, in Hebrews 12, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and sat at the right hand of the Father. Think about that idea of fixing. I was out in New Jersey in the East Coast for about 30 years. And here in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, when you want to you know, shoot a buck, you have a Remington or a Winchester or some other rifle. In New Jersey, they use Fords and Hondas and GM products. <laughs> and they knock off a lot of bucks. There's, the place is overrun by deer. I never saw so many deer in my life driving to the parking lot. There's an eight-point buck, there's a six-point buck at the church that I worked at for many years. And when I would go back and hunt with my family, we have a family farm in Rapid River area, and my elders would kind of look at me, because hardly anybody in that church hunted. They'd kind of look at me and say, well, what is it that you do out there? So I put together a little slideshow. Showed my firing lane, showed my hunting blind, showed him my deer feeder, this metal can which spewed out corn a couple times a day, set about maybe that high off the deck on these steel stanchions. And then I told him this little story, too. I'm watching two does come out. And you know, hunters, what I'm talking about. First, the, the, the buck sends the does out there. And if nothing happens to them, then he comes out. That's typically what happens, right? So the does come out, and the buck's kind of you know, waiting, looking. And then finally, he comes out. And they're walking very slowly, eating the corn in front of, our, next to the, uh, the deer feeder. The problem is, they're on the opposite of the side of the deer feeder than I am, and they're walking against each other, and the buck is behind them. And I hate the idea of shooting and wounding an animal, and then it runs off into the woods and suffers, and then becomes basically a golden corral buffet for a pack of coyotes. So I'm looking. Can I make this shot? It's a little over 80 yards away. I'm looking at a panorama of about 50 yards, and I get my fix out. And I look at my fix, that whole 50 yards, I've got about a two and a half inch space to shoot between those stanchions holding up my deer feeder, past the doe, had to wait, I just timed it perfectly, just to walk by. I had a small window where I'd hit the buck in a way I know, knew I could take him down with one shot. And here's my result. There I am at the family camp, and one of those bucks is mine. If you notice, I'm holding a rifle, and on top of my rifle is a fix. The Greek word for fix is called scope, our scopos. It's where we get our, our English word for scope, our telescope, our rifle scope. The idea in Greek was to fix your eyes on a narrow point and remove every other distraction around you. So all you see is that one thing that enabled me to make an otherwise impossible shot from 80 yards, just two and a half inches, but yet I was able to do it. You see this in the sports world, too. So many times you, you, you see these, for instance, movies about sports, like For the Love of a Game, The Love of the Game, a sport a movie about the Detroit Tigers that I don't think anybody watched. 
But at the end of that game, the pitcher is there. It's his last pitching game of his life, a very long career, had been a successful pitcher, and he's pitching a no-hitter. And all of a sudden, as he's got that last batter up, the, the cinematographer does some unique things. The whole crowd disappears. The first baseman, second baseman disappear. All the infield, nobody's there. All that's there is the pitcher, the batter, the uh, catcher, and the umpire to make that last couple of pitches. If you've ever watched the golf movie, uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, you have a sh part in there where the uh, Bobby Jones, who was a real-life character, a great golfer that era, he's getting prepared to hit the ball. All of a sudden, as he get, lines up on the ball, the gallery disappears. The opponents disappear. Everything disappears, and the field, the fairway gets wider. Total focus on the idea of getting that ball down there. As an athlete, that's what you have to have. Total focus and remove the distractions away from you. Well, Paul talks about hanging in there and straining towards what is ahead in another verse in Philippians 3.13. Again, it's an athletic metaphor. He uses the word straining, uh, Greek word "exteno," where we get our word extend from. And he adds a preposition to the front of that word, epi-exteno, which means to extend to the utmost, to strain to the absolute end of your ability to strain, like a runner running through the tape of a finish line, giving his every last ounce of effort to get through there as fast as he can. In Hebrews, it says, run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Again, taking what the Greek philosophers would preach as a life principle, perseverance is a very important principle, and elevates it to the spiritual level. I think of perseverance as hanging in there no matter how long it takes. In the Christian world, there's no giving up. There's only getting up and getting going again. In endurance, he says in the next line uh, that Jesus, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We have to endure. I look at endurance as hanging on no matter how hard it gets. And life, as we all know, if you don't know that, you figure it out pretty soon in life, can be pretty hard. Every one of us goes through some level of trials and tribulations. I once entertained a thought that nobody, there's some people in the world that don't suffer. I had that totally dashed when I started the ministry. Because typically when we say that kind of thing, we're looking at the material side of a person's life. If somebody's making a lot of money, drives a nice car, lives in a nice house, we think, well, maybe nothing bad ever happened to them. I found out. That's never true. You get to know people well enough, you find all kinds of suffering that they've gone through and family of origin issues, other children's issues. Life comes with trials. It just does. And God uses them for his glory and our betterment. We have to persevere and we have to endure. Well, we not only forget what is behind and we fix our eyes on what is ahead, we have to finish the race. We have to run through the tape. When I ran track and field for Gladstone High School a very long time ago, our coach taught us that the finish line is not the finish line. The finish line is 10 to 15 yards beyond that line. He did that to motivate us to run through the tape. It's not over till you're well past it being over. So many athletes, and even to this day, even some Olympic athletes, I watch them look to see how, what they're going to finish in, they slow down. I watch them slow down before they get to the tape, 
at the UB Finals a few weeks ago at Kingsford. Saw so many kids coming up the line, they just slow down. Maybe they win, but they surely do not do their best. Our coach said the finish line is 10, 15 yards beyond the finish line. And that's what it is for the Christian life. We have to run through the tape. Again, I remind you, Paul says, run in such a way to get the prize. If you want to run to do your best, to live your best, you need to do the kinds of things he tells you to do the best you can. Paul wrote this at the very end of his life. He says, I fought the good fight. Now in the world of running in ancient Greece, it wasn't like track and field today. If you notice that track I showed you, it was oblong. You didn't have lanes. You had a post that you ran around as you did laps. So when this post uh, made it, you had to make a 180 degree turn, there would be fighting and shoving. So even in a race, not like we do today, that's illegal. But in those days, that was perfectly legal. There would be fighting right at that point to make those turns and try and get ahead. So Paul writes, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who are longing for his appearing. There's a crown awaiting for you, a crown that all of us will get to see the Lord put on your head. If you run through the tape, all of us who trust Christ have salvation. But you know, there's a difference of reward. All of us will get a cup that's overflowing, but some of us are going to get a bigger cup than others. What we do in this life affects how we spend eternity. Salvation is free. You're going to go there. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is a reward for those who particularly serve him with their whole heart. But all of us are going to get a crown. All of us will get a reward. So, how do we run that race that God has planned for us to run? We train in godliness. We learn to grow in our love of God, grow in our love of each other. Let the word of Christ not just come in our ear, but make a home in our life. Let it dwell in our hearts and minds so it affects how we think and do and speak and act. Be devoted to prayer. Grow in your prayer life. Find ways where you can do this. I know we all live busy lives and it's hard to do, but there are ways that you can adjust your life and find time to pray to God. Tell people your story. If God does something good in your life, tell your family about it. Like Jesus told the Gadarene demonic, the Almaniac, go home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. That's how you train for godliness. And when you're trained for godliness, remember you've got to forget things. You've got to leave things in your past. Let the blood of Christ cover over your sins. Don't be pulling out your dirty laundry all the time. Just say, look, Jesus forgave me and he will forgive you. Don't think even about all your successes. Don't live in the past. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let the distractions go away. When I've looked at people in my past, including a number that were in this church many years ago, when Pam and I attended here back between 1970 and 73, there were some great people that God put around us. Dave Thomas, uh, your chairman, asked me to do something I hadn't thought about for a long time. He said, can, can you put a resume together? And I thought, resume, what is that again? I hadn't done one of those in a very long time. So I found my resume that I filled out 31 years earlier and uh, tried to update it a little bit. I was just about a month ago at a men's retreat with the very guy I sent it to, Bruce Ciotta, who was the chairman of the search committee. We have been lifelong friends, and we did a men's retreat 
out in Utah a month ago. And I reminded Bruce of that moment. So I took that resume and added some things. And as I thought about that, I realized God had put us around some of the greatest people in the world that were encouraging, lived godly lives, and were running through the tape of life. They were finishing the race. Some of them have finished already, and some are having a tough time, but they're finishing the race under very difficult circumstances. These are great people, great people to follow. And you all know who some great people are in this church, and some, maybe you're one of them. Get around those kind of people that can influence you for Jesus Christ. So I forget what is behind. I fix my eyes on what is ahead. I strain for that end, and I finish the race. Remember, the end of life is not the end of the race. For the Christian, the end of the life is we walk through or run through that tape, we go on to an eternal fellowship with God, and we get to serve him for all eternity. I look forward to that day. There have been three times the last several years where I nearly died from, from heart attacks. And I observed something. Everybody seems to talk about, you know, heaven. But did you ever notice nobody seems to want to go there? Well, you know, you're looking at somebody who wants to go there. So I'm ready for the Lord to take me any time he wants. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to continue focusing my eyes on Jesus and running through that tape that God has given me to run through. So that's how you run the race that God has marked for you to run.